beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For those of who you were here last week, you may remember that in the afternoon service we spoke of repentance and conversion. This morning our journey through Nehemiah has led us to a very closely connected, although still distinct, topic. Today we'll be looking at the topic of confession. Now, most people, when they think of confession, think of perhaps the Hollywood portrayal of the Roman Catholic Church. You have a priest sitting in a booth, a man comes in and sits in a separate partition, and then he proceeds to tell the priest about everything that he's done wrong. He confesses his sins to him. Now, Hollywood often creates this mystical sense around this particular event. And you can see that when the characters leave the confessional booth, they feel different. They clearly believe that it has great value. Now, one man confessing to another is certainly part of confession as we read of it in the Bible. Christians are called to confess their sins and to pray for each other. James 5 is one example of such a call. But confession is not always as mystical as it's often portrayed. In fact, confession is both simpler and more complex than it's made out to be. Now, why do I say that? Confession is at its heart telling the truth. But there is more to it than that. The Hebrew word to confess means more than simply to admit sin. It means to acknowledge, to affirm, or to recognize. You not only tell the truth about what you have done, but you tell the truth about who you are and about who God is. Often we have it that when we confess the sin, we don't confess our sin. We don't tell the whole truth. Now, this is not to say that we are lying about something, but rather we, we tell God or maybe we tell somebody else about a symptom of our sin, that we acted in a way that was sinful without acknowledging where that came from and without acknowledging where that puts us in a relationship to God. Moreover, we don't take the time to think about who God is and what he does. This very same question is one that we find answered in our passage today. Nehemiah 9 follows immediately after Israel's submission to the word of God and after the feast, the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. They were saddened that they had missed so much in their former abandonment of God's law at that time. And yet, they rejoiced that they had a chance to celebrate God's redeeming work in the Feast of Tabernacles. But now that celebration has come to an end. That week-long feast has come to an end. Their time of rejoicing is over. And now they have the time to reflect on their sins, to come and face their sins once more. So now, two days later, they gather together for a time of public confession. And in doing so, we find that the truth brings a covenant people back to God. 
And we'll see how confessing the truth shows us our nature and confessing the truth directs our hearts towards God. The passage that we're focusing on today flows out of the previous chapter. In Nehemiah 8, we saw the people beginning to move towards true revival. And this revival began with a thankful submission to God's word. Sure, they expressed sorrow about the fact that they had failed in the past. But they were also able to express joy at God's redeeming work. This feast, the week in which they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, this feast wasn't about them. It was about what God had accomplished for his people, how he had saved them, and what he had done for them. Eagerly and daily during this time, they poured over the record that had been made in the Torah, the first five books, what they spoke of as the law. They made sure that they celebrated with joy God's deliverance. They also made sure that they were following the commands that God had laid out for them. But the command to rejoice could only last for so long. Because as they were examining the law, In the previous verses, as they were examining the law, they were reminded again that their rebellion wasn't limited to the last number of decades just after they had come back from the exile. They had fallen short in that time period. But this problem was a habitual pattern. As they were reading, they had uncovered the collective soul of their people, shone light into the lives of their forefathers, and they found many many parts of it that revealed deeply entrenched sin. It was shocking for them. It was disturbing. And it required a response. So on the 24th day of this seventh month, the second day after the close of the Feast of Tabernacles, the people of Judah all gathered together. Now you'll note that it's only people of Israelite descent that gather together at this point in time. They separate themselves from the people around, whether those people be the pagans who are living among them, or these people are maybe uh, people who have become Jews and who have joined them in the land. They separate themselves from these people. Because the, they separate themselves because these people don't share a common ancestry with them. And these people don't share in their guilt. And so we read in verse 2 and 3, Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. And for another fourth of the day, they confessed and they worshipped the Lord their God. This would have been an uncomfortable time for them. The truth of the matter is that we don't like to be exposed. When people look at us in the workplace, for example, we want them to see us as good husbands or good wives. When they come to our home, the whole family pitches in so that our lives can look like they're organized. Remember that time that someone showed up unannounced and the house was a bit of a disaster? Yeah, not pleasant. Often we'll assure people that this is not a normal state for our lives to be in. 
for you young people, when your classmates chat with you. You want them to see someone who has their life together, someone who seems like they're in control. Nobody wants to be seen as a mess. To be willing to be seen as a person who struggles with real issues requires a lot of vulnerability. To take ownership of sins and mistakes that have been made requires even more so. And to do this before a God, b- b- before God is even more difficult. In fa- fact, we'd often rather just run away. That is the natural inclination of man. You can see this right from the beginning. Adam and Eve, when they took the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they took that fruit and they ate it. When they heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, what was their first reaction? They ran away and hid. They ran away from the only person who could possibly save them. They ran away from the source of their forgiveness. They ran away from the person who was able to redeem them. Think of the irrationality of that for a moment. The only person that they had sinned against, the only person who could possibly forgive them, and yet they run from him. But this is no surprise to you, is it? If you're honest with yourself, you'll find that this is very often the same pattern that you find in your own lives. Because that is the nature of sin. Sin is irrational. It flees from grace. It loves the dark and it hates exposure. Sin blossoms best of all when you feel that nobody knows about it. When it's in the dark, it's your own little secret. Consider the last time you knowingly committed a sin. Consider when you did what we consider when you did what we read in Romans 7. I do not do what I want to do, but what I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Having done it, what was the first inclination of your heart? Was it to immediately run to God in repentance? Was it to unburden your heart on him and ask for his forgiveness and for his mercy? More than likely, this was not the case. We try to hide our sin. We try to make sure that it's not exposed. When it does become exposed, we try to downplay it. And when downplaying it doesn't work, then we come to God filled with shame for our sins. And now those are two things that I'd like to look at for a moment, the downplaying and being filled with shame. Our society holds to this quite firmly, downplaying sin and minimizing it. The Bible has the words sin, wicked, or evil in it appear over 1,800 times, but you'll rarely find it mentioned in society today. People look for causes, for underlying reasons, for behaviors. You'll find it in court when there are are always mitigating circumstances that are brought up. 
There's fields of psychology and sociology that will explain why it's not your fault that you acted this way. But the fault of your circumstances, the fault of the way that you were raised. And when there's no way to get past it, we compare ourselves to the neighbors and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. Now, by saying this, am I saying that our childhood doesn't affect us? That the griefs that we had then or maybe later in life don't play into how we treat others today? Does that mean our circumstances don't incline us towards certain actions? Certainly not. Because we know the truth of that. I heard someone speaking about that just yesterday in passing. And they said, people who are hurt hurt other people. The very bent of our fallen nature means that we are inclined towards evil all the time. The fact that we have this, the fact that we have this nature means of our natural, in our natural man, we are inclined towards evil all the time, having fallen into sin. Having been abused may very well mean that we are more likely to be abusive. Having had an alcoholic parent may very well mean we're more likely to be alcoholics ourselves. We are involved with these things does mean it's more likely, but it doesn't make it any less sinful. What's the consequences of the line of society's thinking regarding sin today? It dilutes what sin means. And it completely takes away from even concerning ourselves with the holy and righteous nature of God. As Mark Roberts writes, as long as we compare ourselves with others, we can play this self-justification game. But when we place our sins alongside the attributes and actions of God, feeble excuses to discount our wickedness fail miserably. Juxtaposed to God, each of us stands out as we truly are sinners and rebels against God who are lost completely apart from his mercy. It is a matter of being compared to the incomparable. It's easy to make ourselves feel better when we compare ourselves to others. When we look at someone else in the church and think, at least my sin isn't as bad as theirs. We watch someone down the street in the neighborhood screaming at their kids and we say, well, at least I never scream at my kids like that in public. We note someone randomly walking into an adult shop and think, well, at least I keep my sins private. These things make us feel better about ourselves. But they don't reach, they, they don't solve our problem. Another barrier besides diluting our sin is the fact that we show shame before God. In being ashamed to come to God when sin is revealed and in downplaying it when it does come to light, there is a common theme. It's a belief that at our root, humanity is able to be good in and of ourselves. Why is it that we feel shame? 
Why is it that you want to run and hide? It's because you do feel shame. It's because you feel unpresentable to, before God. And that feeling is indicative of a larger problem. Why? Because it means that at other times, you feel like you're okay to come before God. That your sins weren't so bad that you were able to come before God. And that's a much bigger problem than the shame that you feel when you come before God after you've committed an obvious sin. If you feel that you're not good enough to come before God some days, but you are other days, then you don't really understand grace. God is holy. We don't deserve to be in his presence at all. As we read again and again through the confession in this chapter, it is God's mercy, God's mercy, God's mercy that allows us to come before him. It is God's mercy that he doesn't destroy his people right away as they deserve. It is God's mercy that instead he upholds us from day to day, from hour to hour, from moment to moment. And in his mercy he even gives us good things to remember him by and gives us reminders and opportunities to return to him. And yet even in our best times of obedience we still sin in a myriad of little ways. As we see in verse 33, you are just in all that has befallen us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have dealt wickedly. Even our best deeds, as Isaiah says it, are at best filthy rags. Our iniquities sweep us away. So what is important is not how you come. What is important is not the manner in which you come before God. The idea that you need to be good or can't draw near until your life reaches a certain standard is in itself a form of legalism, a form of I need to be a certain way to be able to come before God. Instead, the importance is that you come. The fact that you draw near before the Lord in confession in response to submitting yourself to his word just as the people of God here in our passage today come before him in response to submitting themselves to his word. This is a small beginning of what God desires from us. What he begins to work in our hearts. In order to come before God, we first need to recognize that the problem exists within ourselves. We need to genuinely come before him with all of our lives exposed. There has to be genuine openness and vulnerability. Not a bravado that says, I have it all together. And not shame that says, I messed up this time. But a humble request and an acknowledgement that our lives are broken. We don't cringe and cower because of our sin. But instead, we expose our hurts, our sins, and our sorrows to the only one who is capable of healing and making us whole again. It is then and only then that we can make the same confession as a psalmist in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. Acknowledging 
transgression moves us beyond covering up. Acknowledging transgression moves us beyond our shame. Acknowledging transgression moves it beyond downplaying sin. It acknowledges that something is wrong, but it also acknowledges that this that is wrong in my life doesn't define me. Rather, acknowledging our sin and coming to God points us to our identity in Christ. It points us to where we find our salvation. When we reach this point, seeing where our identity lies, where our nature is now based, unlike our former walk of life, we open the way for very real change. And then we find, we'll find that confessing the truth directs our hearts towards God. It's funny, isn't it, that it works this way? You would think that recognizing who we are, recognizing how holy God is, and how much God hates sin, we would run as far away as we could from God, and as fast as we could as well. We're unholy, but God is holy, righteous, and good. We're filthy. But God is pure. But confession, recognizing who you are and who God is, is a sign that God has already begun his work in your heart. He has shone his light into the darkest corners of your heart. So there is nothing left to conceal. He knows everything about you. So there is no more reason to hide. All that is left is to come to him. The only one that can make you clean. And that's what we find in our passage today. Having spoken the whole truth about who they were as a people, and having nothing left to hide, the people confess their sins. This becomes very apparent if you look at the structure of Nehemiah 9, that they recognize the truth of the holiness of God, and they expose their own sin. One commentary breaks it down in this way. You can see God's greatness in creation, covenant, and redemption in verses 6 to 15. They are establishing who God is, that they should rightly serve him. He has created them, and he is the one who continues to care for them. He's established a relationship with them. But having done that, you see the people's response in verses 16 to the first half of 17. They harden their necks. Second half of 17, you can see God's grace in response to that. And then in verse 18, you can see the people's idolatry. Verses 19 to 25, you can see God's mercies. And then in 26, you can see the people's disobedience. Verse 27, you see God's discipline and salvation. First half of 28, the people's evil. Second half of 28, God's deliverance. The first half of 
or verse 29, you can see that people's stiff necks. And then finally, it closes with God's patience, God's judgment, and God's mercy. To give you a bit of a taste, let's take a quick look once again at those verses. And I want you to see if you can spot a pattern. Verses 17 to 19. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks. And in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made a molded calf for themselves and said, This is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations, yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them the light and the way that they should go. Despite all that the people had done, God still came back for them. And he brought them into the promised land. They referred to their falling away and the return again and again. And then finally you see a summary of their continued shortcomings in verse 28. But after they had rest, this being after they were delivered, they again did evil before you. Therefore you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard them from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Notice the pattern you see in these particular verses we read and in the entirety of the chapter. The people of Israel are made vividly aware of their own sin. They are also made distinctly aware of God's holiness. But the recurring theme here is not a focus on their inadequacy. It's not a focus on their failure. The recurring theme here is a focus on God's mercy. For the people of Israel, the recurring theme was their identity that was found in God, their covenant God. This is not just a confession of sin. It's not just telling the truth about who they were, what they had done. But it's a confession of God. It's a confession of where their identity lies. Notice also how every time that they mention their sin, they also direct their eyes back to God and to his mercies. Their sin was great and continual, causing them to need to lay bare their soul before him, exposing what they did not take responsibility for in the past. But now that they have confessed it all, there's nothing left to hide. There's no reason for them to try to scrape together a few fig leaves to cover their shame. They're able to come before the Lord in true humility and repentance. And they do. They call out in verses 36 to 37, Here we are, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it, 
and it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. Now, although we would be able to go into their establishing a covenant in response to them, bearing their souls before God, that's more of a chapter topic for chapter 10. That is their immediate response to this confession. But what I want you to leave you with today is a simple message that we are brought back to again and again in our passage. The tr- that the truth brings God's covenant people back to him. They are brought to understand the truth about themselves. And they are under- brought to understand the truth about God. And this directs the people to find their identity in God. This confession of sins, along with this confession of God, directs them to find their identity in Him. This is what Jesus spoke about as well during His time on earth. We read this in John 8, verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed Him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. To be the disciples of Jesus, you're called to submit yourselves to the word of God. And this includes submitting yourself to what it tells you about you. It includes confessing what the word of God tells you about you. And it includes going to God and seeing who he is, his holiness and his hatred of sin. But this doesn't cause us to fear. No, instead, the truth leads us to the one who can grant us mercy in light of this. It leads us to discover our need, and then it directs us to Jesus Christ. This is why when the Jews asked him in response to that verse in John 8, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. You say the truth will set us free, but we've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? He responds to them saying, Most assuredly I say to you that whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in a house forever. But a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Sin can have a truly captivating effect. And all of you here, have experienced that in one way or another. You can all attest to its power and its corruption that seeps through you. And it not only affects you, but your sin impacts your wives, your husbands, your children, those in your care. It impacts your relationship for you students with the guys and girls at school or if you have a summer job now, at work. But the truth recognizes the nature of this sin. The truth is willing to dig deep and find the underlying motivations. This truth worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit through the two-edged sword of the Word of God shows us who we are, who God is, and who can redeem us. This is what we see and confess every time that we go to the Lord's Supper. It gives us a place that we can confess the truth of who we are as we drink from the wine and we eat the bread. The truth of who we are, sinners in desperate need of redemption. 
And every time as we come to hear the gospel message that's proclaimed after the Lord's Supper or the gospel message that's proclaimed Sunday after Sunday in the church, it gives us a platform to celebrate the truth of the sacrificial grace of God, his abounding love and his unending mercy. By confessing this truth about ourselves and God, we flee. We flee from self-deception, self-reliance, and self-sufficiency. And we flee to the one who brings us truth, dependence, and is sufficient for all, the one in whom we find our identity. And in doing that, the Son sets us free indeed. Amen.